So I'll, I'll say that again. Um, or maybe we could just launch. Um, well, we'll try, I'm, I'm going to try and I'm actually going to try and be professional this time and see if I can be like. Uh, I remember Crutchy the Clown in the Simpsons going in and walking in doing uh, voiceovers for for some crappy products he was selling and in and out the door in 20 seconds, one take, you know. Um, Uh, welcome to Zero Ambitions, uh, a shambolic podcast that's trying to give people assistance and advice on how to decarbonize uh, our build environments and our buildings. And it's hot this week. Seems like the world is in in meltdown, uh, and uh, in particular, the Ireland, the United Kingdom, and, and large swathes of Europe. So we thought that it would be a really interesting idea to try and take a little bit of a departure from the kind of abstract. Uh, uh, waffle that we normally, uh, that our normal purview, offers some sort of practical advice for people on how to manage uh, in very difficult conditions, extreme heat, and and also look at, look at that from the context of the building design perspective. So uh, and think about how we can we can avoid these problems in a world where these kinds of issues are going to become much more prevalent going forward. So with that in mind, we've ruffled three guests. We've got Nick Grant and uh, Alan Clark, who are Two passive house consultants, Nick Moore, uh, I think probably on fabric and more general, and then and Alan on, on building services specifically. And they're long-standing green building enthusiasts and experts. Um, I use those words very rarely, but I think in their case it's, it's applicable. And then we've also got Kate de Salancourt. Kate is a, a journalist in this space who has been writing for Passive House Plus for the best part of a decade. And I've certainly learned a lot from very closely and carefully reading everything that's ever written for us. <laughs> no, she's brilliant. She, she, uh, she, 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 the kind of deep dive uh, journalism, often, all, you know, asking awkward questions um, uh, that people maybe want. You know, the job of the journalist is asking the questions that you maybe don't want. To, uh, people don't, don't want you to ask, um, but uh, hopefully helping to move the needle a wee bit in, the, in terms of our collective understanding of 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 how to make sustainable buildings that really really do work um uh, so uh yeah um, and uh on this week uh, my co-hosts we've got uh, dan and alex and duncan sarah's away at, at the retrofit what's it called again the festival the retrofit reimagined in birmingham which i would love to be at but listen nick alan kate thank you so much for joining us are you um are you sweltering are you suffering in the heat where you are not today no we won't be no it's not that degrees. hot yet but it's been threatened Nick, you're you're in Hereford, and yeah. Alan and Kate, you're in Forest of Dean, isn't that correct? Yes, which is yeah. in Gloucestershire. Nick, in your case, you built a a, a low energy building. Pretty getting into the into Passive House, you you did a lot of the right things, really. Um, All we knew about Passive House, we'd heard the word, and there was a guy called David Olivier who had mentioned it. I don't think the stuff wasn't in in English then; there was nothing translated. So, it kind of new thermal mm-hmm. bridging was a bad thing. My background wasn't in building, it was straight engineering. And it was all about materials, so we thought we must build out of straw and local wood and all that sort of thing. So we did that, but we did think airtightness was important. And a lot of the things, because we started from not knowing how buildings go together, we didn't sort of start with a building and try and improve it. We just started from how might we make a building happen if you didn't know how to design a building. So that was had some advantages. So we kind of started with the structure and wrapped it in airtightness and wrapped it in insulation. So a lot of the stuff we teach now and do now, and the foundations were thermally bridge-free, floating on polystyrene, which 
don't know if anyone had done that in the UK at the time, but something, again, David Olivier mentioned he'd seen in other countries where they're doing low energy stuff. So we just, you know, the engineer balked at that and then realised it would work and then did it. We didn't know about form factor. We assumed that if you got really thick walls, it didn't really matter about you're not losing the heat through the wall. So the shape didn't really matter. That was turned out to be very wrong. Um, so we've got a form factor, which passive house people know about. Um, our form factor is about five, which we're not really proud of. Air tightness was quite good at the time, probably one of the most airtight houses in Britain, but embarrassingly bad by today's standards at about two, two air changes, something at 50 pascals. And we did natural ventilation, of course, because we wouldn't want to waste electricity running fans and all that horrible mechanical ventilation. So we did that for about 10 or 15 years or something, and then very glad to have retrofitted mechanical ventilation. So it's been a learning. It's been quite good living with stuff that people are still promoting and advocating. So, but what we did get right, I think one of the things we were worried about summer comfort, I don't really like the heat very much. Uh, so we didn't overdo the glazing, but then we didn't, a lot of things we didn't know about. We could have done, you know, more more glazing, but with less gains now with what we know. Plus it's double glazing, not triple and so on. But it's a lovely house. And and, I, and Alan and Kate, I seem to recall you put heat recovery ventilation in, didn't you? Did you retrofit much? Uh, yes, quite a lot. Um, my background is as an energy consultant, morphing into building services engineer, and back to energy consultant. And we moved into this um, traditional stone-built house 25 years ago, made a bit of half-hearted start at um, energy conservation measures, and then had children and then didn't do anything to the house for 10 years, I think. So then when we came back to that, I'd already worked on a couple of passive house new builds by that stage. The NFIT standard didn't exist, and we didn't think it was feasible to make the retrofit to the passive house standard we looked at what we will call passive house principles we went for air tightness external insulation and mbhr and i like um looking at things mathematically and, and modeling them but always getting back to seeing how that compares with the real world rather than just disappearing to my computer so this one time or another everything in this house has been monitored to some extent <laughs> so now we'll be uh, tracking the, the heat pump performance and the, the airflow temperatures through the mvhr and such like uh, now i do, I do want uh, at a stage to talk to you about about overheating in the context of new building design and, and retrofit projects you've got extraordinary insights really between the three of you to, to offer in these regards but i think it's important to kind of start in the here and now the situation we're in we're, we're talking the forecast. John, you were saying, what, what kind of temperatures are we? Well, I, Alex and I were heading up to Glasgow for some work on Tuesday morning. And so we're going to be traveling from London to Scotland on the UK train network on the West Coast mainline on the hottest day of the year. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's going to be an appalling experience. And the horrible thing we know is we might not even make it because you know what it's like once the trains get above 20 odd degrees everything starts to fail. Poor quality steel starts to buckle, whatever. So we are travelling with our fingers crossed on a day where I read BBC Weather this morning said in Bromley, where I am now, it's going to be 27 degrees by eight in the morning. That's preposterous. Like that's Australia weather, but not, not London. I'm, I'm from the northwest, and it was a revelation to me moving down here that you might have a summer wardrobe that would last for more than two weekends of the year but <laughs> christ on a bike i was not expecting this sort of temperatures i live in a top floor flat which has big southwest facing windows on the front of it and it's like a hot box come the the middle of the afternoon it's like living in a greenhouse it's like like the air is like a hot bath in here coming from when i used to work in an office coming from a, an, an air-conditioned office getting off an air-conditioned train into my house at home man i was having to strip off 
like the moment I got through over the threshold. Like I don't want to project too unpleasant an image for everyone, but <laughs> it was the only way to cope with the temperature difference. Mm-hmm. I would love. I mean, to I hear. could just say something about the uh, the biology of what happens when when we get hot, which is um, obviously our bodies meant to run at 37 degrees but we're producing heat all the time our metabolism uh, so we have to shed heat anyway even when it's below 37 and obviously if the air around you is above 37 it started to get quite difficult to send heat up against the temperature gradient and the only ways that we can do that is is via sweating which you know in itself takes metabolic work and some people aren't very good at sweating Prince Andrew that's a blessed with the ability to sweat but elderly people and young children in particular especially elderly people who are suffering from cognitive impairments don't always kind of don't remember what to do and obviously a, a small baby is not able to do anything about it well as you know how you feel what you know you take your temperature when you're when you're unwell and if it says 39 or 40 you think oh dear I'm, you know this is terrible and if it's 41, you probably have a seizure. So it's so it's we've got such a small margin between what's, you know, the homeostasis that our body is struggling to maintain and what will actually kill us for elderly and and uh, very tiny people in particular. It's it's very dangerous. I mean, it is more it's more critical than getting cold, although it doesn't happen so often. But it's really important to find ways to keep the temperature so that we can still lose that metabolic heat and to help people to uh, lose heat with air movement and low humidity and so forth. I think that's just a fantastic advice, Kate. I mean, it's so important that people understand that and take take this seriously. It reminds me, um, the school of thought in building physics around um, adaptive comfort and the idea that people can uh, kind of adjust the kind of comfort level they're able to accept based on, well, on adaptation over time, you know? Well, I think, I mean, adaptive comfort is a thing when the conditions rise from 24 to 31 steadily over the course of a week or two or over a summer. You 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 find, you you do adapt. And I, I don't know the physiology, but I assume that your body gets more responsive and you're able to... Um, bring the blood to the surface of your skin more and sweat more and, and so forth. But, you know, there comes a point when, you know, physics takes over and you can only lose so much heat from um, evaporation from your skin. Um, and when it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot to do with humidity as well. They have very, very high temperatures in desert places, like 45 and things, unimaginable temperatures so far anyway. Um, and people are able to live and not die um, because it's dry and they're able to um, shed heat through evaporation. But, you know, there comes a point when, you know, there's no point in being used to it. If it's just physically impossible for that heat to be lost, then you're done for, really. I mean, that does make a, a point that people should take about this sort of forthcoming heat wave being so sudden. I think it does look to be very, very dry as well. So you know, losing heat through sweating and the sweat evaporating is a good way to keep com- comfortable, basically, which people will realise that you want to dress as lightly as is um, practical. And uh, remember to keep drinking. Fans will help. They um, basically work by increasing the loss of heat from your body by moving the air past it, removing the humid air and removing heat by convection as well. It's interesting that like we're 
we are living through quite a significant change, quite a dramatic change. And the one that we're only absolutely with absolute clarity and certainty able to recognize right now since the the heat wave that we had what three four years ago that that was just heavy work but it feels like there's a lot of change that we're gonna have to build into this so we we talk a lot about uh systemic and personal effects so we're talking about personal heat management that's a useful thing you know frozen flannels on rotation put them over your arteries and that cool yourself down they're absolutely fantastic. But it feels like there's going to need to be some quite significant changes in the building and construction world in terms of retrofit and new build, developing the built environment to be able to be adapted or adaptive to the change in weather. Long term, it's not just temperature that's going to change. You know, the sea levels are rising, it's going to get wetter. But like we we have a lot of people who are listening to this who are already who who are in the construction industry. Like, what should they be thinking about? How should they be approaching this if they are to take on something like passive house principles in the 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 absolute true sense of it, rather than the euphemistic sense, which is sometimes used? Can people make a big difference? Um, I guess we could start from the point of view of looking at what works in practice, and also looking at the numbers in the models and so on. So we could come from it from a South Southern European sort of context of external shading and night ventilation. I sort of remember childhood visits to Chateau in Provence where it was these sort of temperatures that we've got every day for months and it was fine. It wasn't too hot. Um, the external shutters were all shut. You weren't going to have those open in the day. It seemed to be managed with a different approach to both building design and how you used it. Yeah, we're our house being a retrofit is not as some people imagine a passive house, because it looks a bit like a, still looks a bit like a Victorian farmhouse, but with shinier render. And it doesn't overheat really, to be honest, but then we do manage it carefully with night ventilation. The shading we've got is internal, but it seems to work. I think with the prevailing weather, the original builders didn't put any south-facing windows on, which we sort of bemoaned when we looked at the um, passive house energy model in terms of heating demand, but come summer, it doesn't look too bad. Although we have east-west windows, they can be a problem. I think just the total area is we have an MVHR, which has got a bypass. So in the daytime, it's hotter outside and the bypass closes. So we go back into heat recovery mode. So we get um, ventilation at indoor temperatures and not outdoor temperatures. So it's, it's, the MVHR works as insulation against the outside heat. Well, it does, and, and it relates to something that um, uh, I'd heard you, Alan and Nick, talk about before. Um, now, I know you've not... I gather not, not engaged in anything approaching a kind of an academic uh, study in this regard, being the kinds of to hang around after a building finished in some cases because you're interested. I seem to recall you talking about in previous heat waves about um, managing the, the, the problem in, in passive houses by closing the windows up during the daytime and then night purging. So the opening window, opening high level windows or roof windows to kind of cool, cool the, build, the building down at night. And uh, how, how have you found that working? What kinds of results are you seeing in those in those situations? Did you say night purging? Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's very dramatic, doesn't it? It sounds like a B movie, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the basic <laughs> situation you've got, whether your house is very well insulated or not, is that um, it loses heat through the fabric, through the walls and so on, and it loses heat through ventilation. And it gains heat through whatever you're doing inside the house and from your hot water tank and your cooking. And it gains heat through sunlight through the windows. And there's all kind of a, a balance there. And if you just leave it sit, it will come out probably above the average 24-hour temperature. But 
as it's quite cool at night relative to the average, if you then put the ventilation up to maximum, you start to lose heat. And so you can sort of tip the balance away from the average to below it by losing heat at the coldest time of 24 hour period and then isolating yourself from the outside at the hottest time. And that's quite a sort of well-established principle in the, the passive house field, I think. Well, that's so, good advice for any house, really, any building that's I mean, suffering from overheating. I remember spending summers in Germany, in mid-Germany, is, is always over 30 degrees through the summer, and they all have external shutters, partly for security reasons, and your houses are generally pretty cool through that period. I think that's a key Actually, point, because we don't really, sorry, we don't really get a summer here do we we might have a heat wave and then heating might be on a day later or yeah that's what happened last time may not so you know if you know it's going to be hot for the summer you you you're ready for the summer every day you shut the blinds whereas here it might be raining in the morning you go out and the sun comes out come home and your house is really hot so we i think because we have weather rather than climate it's last time we thought we were going to a real heat wave it didn't mum and dad i mean they're elderly but they had the heating on the next week and we were all, you know, sort of what a scorcher in the papers and then back to that. Whereas if you know it's going to be hot for any time. And also, yeah, there's a point if you have failed with that strategy, there comes a point where you'd rather have the sort of hot air from outside blowing past your face, even though it's making the house even hotter and it's going to make it worse at night than to sit in what feels stuffy. It's not stuffy, it's loads of air, but the perception is stuffiness. So there's a point where you do give up on you just let the heat in because you just, you know, even having hot air blowing in your face is better. But that's just that's what, what happens. I think it's it's interesting as well. So I grew up in the south of France, so I'm very familiar with the whole routine of as soon as you get to the summer, the shutters get closed and you get up as early as possible. You open everything up and not so much at night because it's still quite hot. So you try and capture it at the right times. And as soon as the sun starts hitting the house, you close everything. And then, and that's sort of the, it's, it's part of the culture. It's and. I, I'm wondering if in England or in the United Kingdom or you know across the, the British Isles, if there isn't also a, a cultural issue where it's true you don't see houses with with external shutters. It's not it's just not the done thing. So is there is there a bit of a change now? Are people starting to become aware? But as you said, Nick, we're still we're not thinking long term. We're still thinking, well, this is just the fad. Maybe there's going to be a bit of a heat wave, and then we'll be back into the cold next week. So how I think are things? We're wired not to, we don't remember the hot when we're designing in summer. You don't think. You don't, you don't think how cold it gets in winter. And if you're designing in winter, you don't, we just, maybe we're wired to forget stuff. Otherwise we'd give up because you know, you're going to die. So maybe we're, we're hardwired to be optimistic. I don't know, but it's really trying to convince them. I mean, the big issue is trying to convince clients or architects that it's a problem. Um, they're just helping throw the windows open. And we've got examples where people have said that. And we said, you know, and we go through the whole, and after all, I think, sod it, you know, you do it. And then you come back and say, oh, our house is really stuffy. And you kind of got an example recently with that happening. And, and it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's um, it, it's expensive mistake to learn, but then you can take people to that house. They talk to those people. They said it'd be all right, and then they can be like reformed smokers. And, oh yeah, don't do what we did. It got really hot. So, but it's yeah, it's hard. We can show graphs and we can explain things and talk about it, and and then then they forget it. You know, you've got to remind them. It. I think it's hard to get people to do it. Well, I think the smoking idea isn't a bad analogy because, or rather, sorry. It's a good analogy <laughs> because uh, just being horribly negative there for some reason. Because it is about behavior and habitual behavior. Because if we're talking about heat management, like British people are very aware of it in some regards. Folk who have gardens know that they've got to water the garden at the very start of the day before it gets too hot because there's a chance of scorching their plants or scorching the, the lawn. Folk know this already. It's just that's, that, that sort of knowledge 
wisdom, whatever, has never been transposed onto people's houses because we used to just over-consuming energy or, or just putting up with it. You know, we put up with the leaky drafts and loss of heat in the winter and the, the high temperatures on the few days that, you know, it does happen or traditionally has happened. So it feels like there's potentially some scope for re-education. I mean, re-education's a bit dramatic. Almost sounds a bit 1984, but uh, <laughs> man, I don't know. Perhaps that is what will be required. We should probably talk a bit about um, air conditioning, really, shouldn't we? Because that's what's going to happen, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and Kate, I, so I read um, Oliver Wainwright uh, wrote a piece in the in the Guardian today about uh, overheating, and he was talking about car, but it was a country in the Middle East where they designed these uh, these streets uh, to be cool, basically. Um, and he was there, and he was you know, walking around the streets and feeling very cool. And he asked them how they achieved it. And it was um, air conditioning, open air air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's the the, the fancy shopping street has has uh, wonderful comfort and the other street on the back end where the where the uh, the, the units it's basically uh, a drain a yeah it's, it's, it's even hotter than everywhere else in the country you know um yes. so it's just it's extraordinary <laughs> that is the fear you know that, that that we look for that article was also saying that by was it 20 2015 that um that uh, air conditioning use would have increased by um Increased global energy demand by an, another America and Germany combined, I think it was, um, as you know, uh, but these protections are anyone's guess, I suppose, really. You know, the, the passive house community is actually a bit more relaxed about air conditioning or comfort cooling, as the pedants will continue to call it, um, than other people because we've got built into our passive house standard a very low limit on the um, cooling demand that you're allowed in a passive house, mm. just the same as with the heating, and there will also be a overall limit on the total energy consumption of the building which will include heating and cooling so there's experience you know places like new york where it's just absolutely a given that you're going to want heating and cooling at different times of the year and there are design solutions that still meet the passive house energy demand limits it feels a bit like our current uk regs aren't just going to be sort of hit by this because there is just no provision in sap for assessing sensibly what the cooling demand will be so yeah, you can just put things in, and there'll just be a nominal figure against it. But you really, need to start designing things for low cooling demand as well as low heating demand. Well, this is it. So, do you think then? I mean, in other words, the recipe is really robust fabric and 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 uh, sensible design in terms of form and orientation, so on, to prevent heat loss and prevent uh, overheating risk in the summer. And then I, I know there are some heat pump style systems out there that, that will be capable of providing a small amount of heat when you require it and a small amount of, of cooling when you require it too. And, um, and I'm also interested in like, wanting to go over the top with like the PV, but P, solar PV, there seems to be a nice potential symbiotic relationship between PV and, and cooling. You know, an active active cooling uh, to some extent. But, I mean, that is the other the other point that um, sort of Passive House Institute is, is making that as we move to more and more renewable energy, we're inevitably, obviously, not got heating demand in the summer. So our renewable energy system is fairly oversized during the summer. There is some scope for some cooling in in North Europe without really having to to stress about it. I think that's the key thing. You're designing. I mean, th- with the Passive House stuff, when we teach it, a lot of it's about winter comfort, all the Fanga stuff from the Whenever that was, and they talk about the right. cold down. I was a German building physicist, wasn't he? I think. Yeah. yeah, 
And they're all the comfort studies and, you know, but a lot of it was about the cold surface temperature. So passive house, we have a triple glazing, we have to keep the surface temperature stop, downdraft and the radiant asymmetry. And the bit we find the same thing happens in summer. So you've got your glass, even if you've got your air conditioning on, I visited a, uh, an extra care home, I can't remember where it was now, but they, they had this sort of, you know, fantastically glazed um, restaurant area and there was um, aircon units in the ceiling, which obviously blew out really cold air. And then there was this wall of glass, which was hot, and the tables had all been moved. It's like these desire lines you see in car, supermarket car parks where people have ignored the pathway. They'd moved all the tables away from the cold drafts and away from the heater. That you're limited to where you can move away because of this wall of hot glass. So it wasn't really very comfortable. But if we, so we need to design with comfort in summer. And it's again, it's back to minimize that having you know, the aircon doesn't suddenly mean you can have loads of glass. Unless you do, like we do in winter, you put the radiators under the double glazing, so you blow cold air over the glass to cool. You know, that's not what we're advocating. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, others you, you'll put in the aircon, you won't get comfort. Um, some years ago, um, Mark Siddle and I were asked to give a talk on summer comfort in, in New York. We thought, oh, great, nice to be asked. Quick Google of um, North America, you find 90-something percent of people have air conditioning. The people saying, yeah, even with aircon, we've got a problem. If you've got too much glass, we have this radiant... You've got the cold air and you've got the hot and you you, know, you just you don't know what's wrong with you. So applying the same physics, you know, the sort of inverse of the winter situation is interesting. I had a job recently, Hassel House, Al and I worked on. The client wanted quite a bit of glass and we did all the calculations and it showed it was, you know, we, we're quite careful with the summer comfort criteria. We try and get it to be zero overheating and we do lots of um, robust testing. But we sort of also said, look, Summer comfort isn't an exact, it's not a pass or fail. It's always can be better. It's never going to be perfect unless you actively cool, you know, so you're always sort of a compromise. So we, we sort of tried to talk them out of the big bits of glass, but they said, well, we can always open the windows, blah, blah, blah. And then went back a couple of weeks ago and they were saying the house is really stuffy. You know, it's not, it's not enough ventilation and so on. Ventilation was absolutely fine. They'd open windows and doors, the MVHR's working. Most of the house, lovely and cool, felt fresh, lovely. But there's one area where these double doors were, which didn't even have the sun on when I was there. And it just felt really hot and over, you know, oppressive. And it was just purely this radiant. I happened to have my thermal imaging camera and the air temperature was 23 degrees, which is the same as it is in my office now. It's, it's fine. Uh, but because of this radiant effect, what we can't normally do, and we could do in this room, we'd move to the other end of the kitchen, which was away from the glass, exactly the same air. I had my CO2 made, same CO2, you know, same freshness, same humidity, everything the same, but less, it didn't have, you were shaded from the radiant because you're a bit further away and the other end of the room. Suddenly they agreed, oh, it's no, it's fine here. So they could sort of get it, but something we teach, but I don't know that anyone takes it in when we show a slide. And it's an expensive experiment to build a house with too much glass and then you know, <laughs> wait for a hot day and then you move to the other end of the house and experience it. There's plenty of them out there, Nick. Don't yes. Worry. I mean, it's, you, know, you can't, you know, and closing the shades on the or blinds on the inside doesn't help because the blinds just become the same temperature as the glass. And we've got thermal images of that as well, you know, schools where they close the blinds and the blinds are at 40 degrees. And it doesn't take a lot of sun to do that because there's not enough sun to heat the room up. The room, as I say, is 23 degrees. It's fine. You know, there's not a lot of sun getting in, but it's just enough shining on the glazing units to raise the surface temperature. It's not that cold. You touch it, it doesn't feel that warm, you know, but radiantly, like Kate says, the way we lose heat, what makes us feel comfortable is whether we're losing heat for convection, radiation, transmission. Um, and we're very sensitive to that. So we kind of, the body's saying, this is not right. We're, you know, there's something wrong. I'm not losing enough heat. And you're just sensing that, that temperature. It's quite subtle, but it feels really quite oppressive when you're there. I, I remember there are these tropes around about whether the build method affects overheating, you know, whether it's uh, thermally lightweight. A method or, or thermal mass, whatever. But I seem to recall the zero carbon hub in a report concluding that um, 
both thermally massive and thermally lightweight buildings were equally prone to overheating, but that thermally lightweight buildings, you were, and this is intuitive, I suppose, quicker to kind of cool down and if you purge ventilate, for instance. Okay, and I don't live in a heavyweight building, I live in a lightweight building. They both, they need a slightly different management. They've got pros, they've both got pros and cons, um, but either can work just as well, can't they? It's just down to the balance of the gains and the losses. So if you lose the same amount of heat at a given room temperature overnight as you've gained, then you'll stabilise at that, that temperature. Thermally massive means the temperature actually varies a bit less during the day, less of a peak in the daytime, and it also doesn't necessarily go as low in the nighttime. But if your ratio of gains to losses from the day to the night is sort of always in them, always adding gains and not losing enough in a massive building, the temperature of the whole structure just steps up night on night. We did some monitoring of retrofit flats a couple of years ago. So they're on basically the same principle as our house. They've got an existing masonry shell that's got external insulation, but over a, a one week heat wave in London, you could see that the temperature going up half a degree every 20, 24 hours, and there was not much they could do about it. And it would have been the same if it was lightweight. I think I don't think it makes a lot of difference at the end of the day. As you say, you might see a bit of a higher peak in the daytime with lightweight, but you'll get rid of the heat. And a, a climate where you know it's summer, so you know your heavyweight in Italy, south of France, is not a problem because you start purging, you keep the balance. Alan's talking about here. We get the heat wave. People think bring it on. So like when we go on holiday and lie on the beach, we get burnt in a couple of days. So you think, oh, twenty four is quite nice when it's hot outside. It feels quite cool. Twenty five, mm, still okay. Then you suddenly get a tropical night and you can't lose the heat. And then suddenly that you hear the weather forecast on Tuesday is going to be whatever. It's too late. Um, cause you haven't sort of, you haven't, you've got all that stored heat and now it hasn't, the thunderstorm hasn't come and it's suddenly gone cold. It is actually going to be a sustained heat wave and then you're really stuffed. Whereas a lightweight building, you've got a chance to just try and dump, you've got less heat to dump. So you might be able to get it back on track. But, you know, if you manage a thermally massive one properly, it, it's potentially an advantage, but you do need to think ahead and plan ahead, which again in the UK climate is kind of hard because we don't know what the weather's going to do. Well, it's, this is it. And I think when people think of, you know, the arguments that sometimes get cited, the likes of a continental cathedral or whatever, where you've got these thermal mass of an enormously thick wall, which I wouldn't have thought really bears any resemblance, you know, as, as, as a point of comparison to, to what would re- be regarded as a kind of thermally massive dwelling. Tiny um, windows. Tiny yeah. windows. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, you've just triggered a memory, Jeff. We were on holiday in the south of France a few years ago. There's a beautiful old early medieval stone church, very thick walls, stone floors, small windows. And it was August. And I was surprised when we went into the church. It was actually really quite warm in there because it had just gradually absorbed the heat from the warm air over the summer. And it wasn't cool at all. I remember thinking, you know, our normal English expectation is you go into a church, it'll be cold 12 months of the year. but it was quite oppressive. The issue probably that there's a difference between a kind of a short and sharp heat wave and a prolonged heat wave where we may be getting higher night temperatures as well. That those kinds of situations are going to place stresses on nearly any build or probably day. Yes, I mean I think that's probably the situation where where for health and well-being, you know, we would have to resort to cooling. I mean, I don't know how cold it gets at night in the south of France in summer, but I suspect not as cool as it used to. My guess is that they'll be facing similar difficulties with with changing. There's clearly been a change. I mean, uh, when I, I was there a few weeks ago for three weeks and we were just hitting 37 degrees every single day. 
And even though we were doing the whole closing the shutters and opening in the morning, it, it it helped a lot. I mean, there was a big difference between the inside of the house and the outside, but it was nowhere near like that 20 years ago when I used to live there. It was just not that extreme. So we are following the same the same patterns for sure. What was happening at night? It, the, the temperatures inside and out, I was in a luckily in, a, in an old stone house that had had insulation. It was an architect's house and they, they'd uh, clearly put a lot of insulation, uh, in, inside insulation, in fact, and we're managing to keep it at, so when we first arrived, the room was 23 degrees and we were keeping it quite stable. And I was working in that room as well. But then over the course of the two weeks, it, it went up to 27. There was no way that we could actually minimize that. That heat, it was just gradually going up and up and up. So uh, even with that house nicely insulated, whereas where the house I grew up in has got no insulation, uh, it's just a single leaf um, concrete house. It's absolutely awful. Like the temperatures are they're, they're sort of the same as, as the outside or close. There is wow. no way that you can cool that house down at all. So um, it's a question of just getting used to it, basically. Whereas living in England now, <laughs> I've completely lost the use of living in heat. Obviously, there comes a point where it is getting quite dangerous. But what happens in a in a south of France? I'm sure it happens elsewhere. There, the police actually call uh, anyone who's uh, elderly. And they check with them to see if they're okay, because they say, look, we know that you're over 70 and it's going to be really, really hot. So we want to find out if you've got enough water in your house, if you've got any means of cooling down, or can you go and see a friend who's got a cooler house? So they actively do that as part of the uh, the sort of civic duty. They, they don't just leave people to, to sort of obviously die in the in the heat. So there's a different, it's a different aspect of managing that heat, but they, they do do it, which is very good. Like, I'm really curious from a personal perspective, if one is approaching a retrofit, of one's own home like where do you start like external shutters so this is something alex has been banging on to me about uh for years literally now like that's what we need and uh, you know buying the right glass for your windows like something that's going to reflect the heat rather than just absorb it if that's going to be a problem like the flat i'm in now but more broadly You've said loads of interesting things and lots of very technical things. Technical to me, being a, a numpty in these circumstances. And in many ways, apart from the simple advice that Alex has given me, I still don't know where to start in adapting my house for the future because this problem is only going to get worse. That much is clear. So where would someone in a who lives in a 1930s semi, like where would they start? I, mean, I think the basics are... It's advantageous to isolate your indoor thermal environment from the outdoor one, both in the winter and the summer. Where would you start? I don't know whether you'd be looking at a retrofit coordinator consultant or a, some sort of a passive house designer. Maybe that may be where we think we'd be going. You probably need to do some calculations combined with your own experience of living in the house to know. Oh, no. Spreadsheets. <laughs> well, get someone else to do that. <laughs> get an expert. Yeah. yeah. Our overall approach would be the same for summer and winter in terms of insulation, air tightness, maybe new windows if that's the case. But yeah, and um, ventilation, the heat recovery ventilation is much harder to install, but would be more beneficial in both keeping the, the heat in and keeping the heat out. But then the next bit, I suppose, is the external shading is just for the summer. So working up on that and nicer sort of external shading works with inward only windows, which would definitely be a sort of modern style replacement window in the UK. This sort of came home to me actually where a client for a housing project in, in Wolverhampton wanted us to use future climate data to model our passive house designs. And they were looking brilliant on the current passive house climate data, which is actually climate data that's been by. It's um, year 2000, not year 2020. But then using for predictions of climate data, you can generate 
average 2050, really bad 2080 sort of years based on what people expect climate change to do and put those in the model and see, oh, it overheats. Well, that's not surprising, but what actually can you do about it? You know, the, the daytime temperature has gone up, the nighttime temperature has gone up. Actually turned out, although the houses weren't very solar gainy, you know, they didn't have excessive glazing, they worked fine in the current conditions. The one thing we had left to do was external shading and that kind of nailed it, that kind of gave us, bought us another several decades by removing that summer heat gain. So now I think movable external shading that you can leave down that lets a little bit of light through is going to be a key for the next, for the you know, coming decades in this country. Well, this is it. I, I just bring it back to that I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, um, that Camden overheating case study that we wrote about in the magazine some time ago. We had a heat wave in 2016. There was a monitoring period from August to October 2016 of this uh, southwest facing single aspects part now certain building topographies are much more problematic in this regard so if you've got like in this case single aspect heavily glazed not floor to ceiling but heavily glazed southwest facing windows you've got no uh, potential for for cross ventilation um, there was no mechanical ventilation systems installed and, and during the during this uh, this monitoring period unoccupied there was a heat wave in september 2016 where the uh, the outdoor air temperature peaked at something like 28 9 or that, that kind of range. It was hot, but not kind of crazy hot. And there was one room left in its original post-renovation, which peaked on that day at 47.5 degrees operative temperature. This is un- unheated, unoccupied. Um, and it was about three o'clock or so in the afternoon when the temperature jumped by so the 10, 15 degrees or so uh, in the space of half an hour or so. I think the fabric of the building was kind of saturated almost with heat at that point. And there was a kind of a tipping point where everything just went bananas. There was another identical room directly in a flat directly above it, both mid-block, mid-floor, that had external Venetian lines fitted. Not heavy duty uh, at a 45 degree angle, I think they were. And that peaked at 29 degrees. So uh, n- not comfortable, not going to kill you. Um, and it, and it was for me, it was a really interesting example in a, a building that didn't have, you know, any of the strategies you'd hope that they'd have. And I should say, the people conducting that study, it was London South Bank University, Zoe de Grosso was the, the academic involved. They, at four o'clock each afternoon, they went in, opened all the windows, left them open overnight, you know, and then closed them again at eight. You'd never do that in London. Really, you know, from, from a noise and, and security perspective and so on, you know. There is an issue here that certain building typologies are going to be much, much more at risk, I would have thought. Um, and, it's, and, and, and that's something that, that I think building people managing portfolios of buildings and so on uh, and designers ne- really need to be aware of. So, sorry, that was, if, if any of you have anything to add to that, knock yourselves out. I'm just doing my usual trick of inviting people on and, and, and talking myself. <laughs> just the, whether you need cooling, I think flats, I'd say anything in London with flats, Definitely, we should be designing with cooling. I think detached houses, you know, out of the middle of town should be able to work without cooling. The danger with any of these things, whether it's external shading, cooling, whatever, it, it's sometimes seen as a get out of jail to just not do the stuff you're trying to do. So you're trying to design as if you didn't need cooling and then add very low level cooling. You should end up with not just low energy, but better comfort. So I think there's a, there's a real danger. We see that. I think I haven't got my head around the part O this way. Building regulations on overheating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. with the acoustics and overheating. But um, there sort of seems to be something's there. But if you do certain things, then you can, you know, it's, it's just, it doesn't quite make sense. I haven't got my head around it yet. But I think it just needs an intelligent approach. But I'd be nervous about doing flats without some form of cooling. Well, um, <laughs> the thing is with flats is that they're bought to be built and sold rather than lived in <laughs> nowadays. Like that, that's a prevailing issue. 
Yeah, what's really struck me today is, man, we need to be planning for change, not just uh, thinking in terms of the ideas that we already hold. Like just what you said about the running the building through the data and then realizing that, oh, this is going to be inadequate in 20 years' time or likely to be inadequate in 20 years' time. And one of the things that's really struck me through doing this podcast, a bunch of the people we've spoken to have described one of the problems with the way we, the way we create the built environment is we create the finished product at the start. We decide what it's going to be and we build that. And we all know from our experience of the built environment is that things change an awful lot. Houses are converted into flats. Warehouses become homes and offices. Even in central London at the height of the pandemic, when they thought commercial office space was going to be, was going to die, they were talking about converting them into homes. I mean, they still are, you know, change the planning regs. If climate's going to be changing in this particular manner, oh man, we need to be planning to adapt at a much more rapid pace just for the sake of, I mean, health and well-being, not just comfort. Well, we'll have to have a think on that. We'd also want to be adapting our whole townscapes and cityscapes. And when Jeff introduced us, he did say, we live in the Forest of Dean, and that is one of our actual tips for keeping cool is to live in a forest <laughs> it's a radical difference to be honest we can't really be considered at the same risk of overheating as other people because the, the trees around us do help um, provide keep cool keep the air temperature down and there's some shade outside as well and then you see a inner city london street that is just black tarmac solar absorber from side to side nothing green and the, if you take the cars out the tarmac out plant it up with trees and greenery, it will make a big difference. Uh, but I, I think it's important again just to go just to re-emphasize. So there are points in the here and now um, people can have regard to. So closing your your house up as far as you can during the day and opening it up at night basically might might be a strategy we can look at to kind of help people get through the worst of it at the moment. Physics-based thing there is to look at the temperature inside and the temperature outside. If it's warmer outside and you bring the air in, it will heat you up. That's, it will bring heat in. If it's cooler outside, it will cool you down sort of physics side to it <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's so simple when you put it like that because it is <laughs> and of course air tightness is equally important for this because uh, air tightness enables you to choose which air you bring in and uh, you know how much and whether you condition it whereas if you've got a leaky building you have no choice you're at the mercy of whatever's happening outside win- winter and summer but yeah. when you get into the building physics of heat transfer from surfaces to air and so on when you want to get rid of a lot of heat at night, it's not really very good just having the windows ajar. You actually want to get the room temperature down as low as possible to outside temperature, which will be quite cool sometimes. So you need your windows open as much as possible without letting the neighbourhood and the cats and everybody else in. So that's obviously easier in some areas, some locations than others. Second floor flat might be fine. I don't know. It depends if you're overlooking the motorway or not. But there's yeah. all the issues with security and window yeah. opening being restricted so your toddler doesn't fall out and stuff. And this all has to be considered when buildings are being built. If you can arrange secure opening downstairs somewhere. Yeah. In the well, we, we had a, we had yesterday, because it's quite hot here, um, where my, myself, my wife and our family were renting a, a flat uh, in Dunleary. And um, we had two bedrooms filling up with, with smell of dope <laughs> so yeah and uh um, yeah just to be clear jeff's kids aren't teenagers <laughs> no, no. Like, that's that's not a self-inflicted problem that was an environmental <laughs> issue it's actually a very common issue it's a very common issue why people don't ventilate because they don't want to smell their neighbors 
smoke and it is often dope so you know i've come across this in serious academic research so you're not alone jeff yeah. i'll admit i've actually blocked up the uh the ventilation in my kitchen because it was imposed upon us and we had to put it on the side of the building which goes straight to the neighbors and the old neighbors not the new ones but they were very happily smoking a lot of dope all the time which was being sucked into the kitchen yeah. all the time so it's now blocked now to be fair i've got a, a skylight so the skylight just gets open instead so it doesn't really matter in terms of the air quality but uh, the environment has caused us to actually potentially compromise the, the building by not having enough ventilation which is a problem in itself uh, there you go on that note uh, look it's been um <laughs> It's fascinating. Uh, uh, thanks to all three of you for coming on. I've I've learned a lot. Um, I hope this mix of kind of advice for the here and now and for people to take account of with regard to how we approach construction projects, uh, you know, design and retrofit of buildings has been useful. But yeah, thanks again, Nick, Alan, Kate. Thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah.